0: You're tuned to Radio BCC and this is the Six O'Clock Swill. This is Six Flots Will, your trusted weekly guide to all the news that's fit to pillory, mock, deride or otherwise lampoon with your hosts Simon Collins, Tim Blair and me Nick Cater. In this podcast, Australia's 29th Prime Minister finds more fake evidence in the case against Rupert Murdoch. The Teflon soothsayers pack their bags for Glasgow. Kel Richards will be joining us to explain why picnics are now offensive to people of colour. And we'll be crossing to Rowan Dean, the editor of Spectator Australia via the crackly muffled laptop made famous by his hilarious but barely (laughs) intelligible crosses to Sky News. But first, Tim, Malcolm Turnbull, our 29th Prime Minister, much esteemed, great author and uh, historian of his own career. Yes, he's um, Um, a a paperback
1: edition of his 2020 memoirs, I think they were called... um, the bigger picture or a bigger stuff up or something like that anyway they thought it wise to add a new forward to the paperback edition and in in generally with forwards you get a great admirer or friend of the author to write them so malcolm turned malcolm turned to his own biggest fan and he wrote it himself so It's it's funny
0: they must have been queuing up
1: oh yeah absolutely everyone they were desperate to be at the front of his book So Malcolm's written this new forward and his friends at The Guardian, of course, Mm. you'll remember he had a hand in founding that elite Australian edition. His friends at The Guardian obligedly ran an extract from it. Now, most people, of course, didn't read it, just like they didn't read his book. But um, uh, an alert reader of mine did read it and noticed a sentence kind of leapt out a little bit. While he's otherwise blaming Rupert Murdoch and Fox News for every evil to ever befall the world, Turnbull claimed that during the January 6th uprising at the Capitol building in the United States, that several security guards were killed. This, of course, is not the case. If, if that had happened, we'd be, we'd be hearing a great deal about it to this day. We would have had all the funerals of these tragic Trump-murdered martyrs to democracy. We'd be, By now, we'd be deep into the trials of these murderers. And uh, leftists everywhere would suddenly have rediscovered a great fondness for the death penalty. But of course, no security guards were killed. Not one. Five, five yeah. people in total died. One was a no. cop who suffered two strokes after, the day after, the, um, the insurrection. Uh, two protesters suffered heart attacks or heart failure. One protester was shot by a cop. And uh, one of them died, unusual circumstances, I think, at any kind of political rally, of an amphetamine overdose. So that's those are the people who died. Not one security guard. So contacted my dear old friend Amanda Mead at the Guardian. She's not a bitter person at all, by the way. After leaving the Oz. she's a really she's a really <laughs> chipper type who's, who never lets it get her down or influence her uh, her work. And um, and asked what was going what was going to happen at the Guardian about this obvious untruth. And she passed it on to the editor. And shortly afterwards, The uh, Guardian did publish a correction. They said that, um, no, the, the the article was wrong and that no security guards had died during the uprising at the White House. So then they had to correct their own correction. It was getting very meta-Guardian at this point. It was error, literally error upon error. and uh, But they corrected <laughs> it. A bit. They, you know, it took them a couple of t- times to get it right. And then I contacted the book's publishers, uh, Hardy Grant, and asked what they were going to do about it because you know things going to press; it's it's going to be published shortly. And uh, and hmm. their solution is that um, they're going to in the next in the following reprint they will excise it from the book. But uh, so yeah, if you want the rare error edition, grab the first one. Grab it, grab it very quickly, and you'll have an almost unprecedented example of Malcolm Turnbull stuffing something up. Who knew?
0: It's one of the great things about crossing to the left, though, isn't it? I mean, you you don't need to fact check on the left. It's only Conservatives who need to fact check, I think, in Australia. Uh, Simon. Well, I
2: I think we can go beyond, you know, party politics in this. We can start talking about, I mean, Kel Richards later on is the kind of thing we can talk to him about, his expertise is about uh, language and so on. But this could be an opportunity for Australia to have claimed some new... um, you know, uh, vocabulary uh, territory here, because as Kel will confirm, you know, the old, an old-fashioned term uh, for uh, someone who betrays their friends and allies is is a turncoat. Uh, uh, but you know, but, but we now know that someone who betrays their in Australia, somebody who betrays their friends and their allies and then just makes things up is a turnbull. <laughs>
0: Very good. Hey, look, we better move on. We have got a packed program to Glasgow the climate summit. You know, I think Thomas Sowell, the uh, American economist, got it right when he talked about the Teflon prophets who promote a view of the world concocted out of fantasy, unsupported by evidence and impervious to real world considerations. There'll be a few of those, I think, at the climate summit in Glasgow. They predict that there will be future social, economic or environmental disaster Unless the government intervenes, and yet the incredible thing about these Teflon prophets, as their name suggests, they continue to be revered, even in the face of evidence disproving their prophecies. So um, I'm wondering what a rational, well-grounded conservative energy minister, uh, how he's going to cope with all this, uh, because uh, you know, if you're a conservative, you're, there are no silver bullets to anything, no certainties beyond those established by empirical observation. Conservatives, uh, I guess, must approach climate change like every other policy by remembering soul-sobering sobering words. Sol wrote, there are no solutions in the tragic vision, but only trade-offs that still leave many unfulfilled and much unhappiness. Y- y- you might have another take on that, Simon. I'm still
2: absolutely riveted by the by the whole kind of uh, media attention to, you know, Morrison's now confirmed he will attend, who's going to be there and who's going to be not. And it occurred to me that, you know, in light of the fact that um, the four largest CO2 emission uh, culprits in the world, uh, their leaders aren't going to be there. And it just, it occurred to me, well, I'm, you know, I'm always looking for a limerick opportunity, but this seemed to be such an enormous one that I'm afraid I, 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 I kind of gave into a romantic impulse and I've called, I've given it a Keatsian title, this limerick right, which is Ode to Pointlessness. And and it goes like this. Affordable power sans coal miner, Trump's prospects sans South Carolina, a wicket sans stumps, Dolly Parton sans bumps, or a climate change summit sans China.
1: Very nice work, sir. <laughs> yeah.
0: I know who will be there. I yeah. know who will be there. Greta.
1: Net
3: zero by
0: 2050. Blah, blah, blah. 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 <laughs> She's already put, We We've only just come on board with zero 2050 and already Greta is just carrying it old hat or conservative or something. I don't know. Where do you go beyond 2050? I mean, do you start trying to take carbon out of the... I mean, I thought there was a fixed amount of carbon. It was just determined by the state of the earth and uh, we've got to somehow dispose of it. I don't know. Any
2: suggestions?
1: Yeah, I think what we should do with fossil fuels is, uh, yeah, we should destroy them. We should, we should burn them in cars.
2: I think we should, um, we should, you know, at some point we should, we should, we should talk about another a story that's getting bigger and bigger as each week passes. Even before Glasgow, is that after post Glasgow, when that's out of the way, this the, the whole issue now that I see that uh, Sky and lots of people are talking about. New, the possibility of nuclear energy in a much more realistic and in uh, uh, you know, an optimistic way. So we should talk about that. But um, you know, but, it, but in the meantime, you know, it's uh, 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 climate summit without China, uh, India, and Russia leadership. Is the it's the Olympics without well China, Russia, and the USA? You know, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's just it's just.
1: Well, we we have had an Olympics without without Russia. They were banned last time, so there was. Uh- some sort of bogus, unofficial. It's quite good group.
2: too
0: because we win more medals. We win more. We win more medals, and so I mean, does that mean we're going to win more medals in Glasgow?
2: <laughs> I, I I disagree, guys. I I disagree. The 1980 Olympics, where where which we did boycott, the US boycotted because of it was in Moscow and they just invaded Afghanistan, and it was a protest against the invasion of Afghanistan. The only the result of that was that Russia won 195 medals which is still a world record it it made absolutely no difference to the length of the war which carried on for another 670 and in fact and, and so it made no difference in the same way as that cop 26 will make difference no difference to climate change and in fact 20 years later america invaded afghanistan <laughs> and nobody <laughs> protested about that
0: look I don't think that's fair. Uh, Tim, Tim will help me here, but unless I'm very much mistaken... Back then, Kim Hughes was captain of Australia, which would have accounted for our poor performance in the Olympics, Tim. Right? Am I wrong? There? <laughs> well, you, you think Kim's got that much of effect over the uh, over the athletic fortunes of his nation? I'm not. I mean, I know that. Uh, I seem to remember he had a very dampening dampening <laughs> effect on the on the cricket field, and perhaps across his entire sporting. Uh, I, don't, I, don't I don't like do
1: hearing that. English-born people talk about the early '80s in Australian cricket. It gets me upset, Nick. <laughs>
2: Well, I just want to I want to say there that um, the, you know the fact that the cricket is not yet an Olympic sport explains why. Um, and I mentioned it before in an in a, in a, in a emissions context, mm. but it's always been interesting to me that India has never never done much apart from cricket has never done much on the sports field. Hockey, They've, you know, considering they like the second, a little bit of hockey, a yeah. little bit of hockey, but they're good at hockey
0: like, and they're good at fixing mm. computers.
2: But I tell you. But they, you know, given that they have a large percentage of population is quite poor, you'd think that they would have embraced what's called the world game, soccer. But they've never very. The reason is that Indian people are far too intelligent, uh, you know, even the poor people, to to spend time staring at a, people chasing a ball when they could be starting businesses and, and 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 improving their lot in life. And the reason they never did well in the soccer World Cup, they never they've never advanced very far in it. Is that. Every time they got a corner, they opened a shop.
1: <laughs> <laughs> By the way, cricket, cricket briefly was cricket briefly was an Olympic sport. I think in the early modern Olympics, was it really? Uh, and and from memory, I think the finals played between England and France. I don't think Australia even bothered to field a team, so um, I'm not sure if uh, <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> if India participated. I don't think we played at all, but I think I think England won over France, and, uh, and after that, no one played Olympic cricket anymore. But I'll look it up as the as the show progresses.
2: That's a that's a that's a bit that's a bit like, here's a here's a here's a piece of Olympic trivia that no one and I'm a rugby union fan, but who is the who is the current reigning uh, uh, rugby Olympic champions? You don't know? I'll tell you, it's the USA. Because they're the last people who won it before it was abandoned as Olympic sport. Oh,
0: well, there you go. Look, uh, we're getting off track here. I mean, this first section of the program is supposed to be very much hard-headed news commentary. And uh, I don't know, we're perhaps venturing off track. So perhaps we better hasten on the arrival of Kel Richards. Uh, Any any other business before we do? Yes, I've cleared up the uh, thing. It actually was England
1: versus France. England won by 158 runs. Uh, Great Britain, rather, won by 158 runs. And um, the team for the French club <laughs> included eleven British nationals, so they couldn't lose. The <laughs>
2: when we spoke to Kel, I do want to come back to talk about post Glasgow and the and the debate about uh, how it's going to affect Scott Morrison and the possibility of an Australian nuclear power industry.
0: Good, and I want to talk about my experience trying to learn Spanish from a cartoon, Owl.
1: Net zero by 2050, blah blah blah, net zero, blah blah blah, climate neutral, blah blah blah.
0: And now we're delighted to welcome to the podcast a man who spends his day dissecting the Australian language into particles, ripening them in a petri dish, and placing them under the microscope. He formerly worked at the ABC as a Norman swan of etymology. He's written a series (laughs) of crime novels and thrillers for adult readers, which include The Case of the Vanishing Corpse, Death in Egypt, and An Outbreak of Darkness. He's a lay canon at St Andrew's Cathedral, Sydney, and the author of The Aussie Bible, which I'm told has sold... Over 100,000 copies. It'll be 100,001 now I've heard about it. Welcome, Kel Richards. I
4: need to explain the the Norman Swan reference. Most of my modelling and predictions are correct.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am sorry. Um, we better edit that out for legal purposes, I think. Um, we'll be sued by our own guests. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. Kel, I, I will warn you, we... Um, uh, you are speaking to uh, two uh, people for whom Australian is a second language here. So take us slowly. But uh, first, look, I might just ask you to explain the name of this podcast, the Six O'clock Swill, if I may.
4: Oh, in the nineteen fifties, it was uh, the the temperance movement took different forms in different parts of the world, and one of the forms in which it took in Australia was that uh, the cha- the closing times of pubs was set at unusually early times and certainly in New South Wales when I was a boy uh, pubs closed this is in the 1950s when I was very young uh, but I know all about this because my father complained about it constantly uh, was the pubs closed at six o'clock and so six o'clock you had the six o'clock swill and then the doors were closed it was back in the days when pubs were uh, had tiles uh, lining the floors and the walls and they had sawdust on the floors to make it easier to clean up after, after a, a, the people vomiting or doing whatever they to do on the floor. <laughs> and so it's, it, it, it's, it's that fairly primitive era. Hence the swill. Well, the six o'clock swill was the hurried final drink. It's like when a publican in England calls time, gentlemen, please, and everyone hurries to get a last drink in. The six o'clock swill was that hurried final drink. And I remember my father's excitement when the closing time was put back to 10 o'clock at night. He just thought that was really civilised, he thought.
0: Oh, everybody's waiting to jump in and ask you a question, Cal, but before they do, I'll just come back with one. Uh, your column this week, your excellent column in The Spectator. We'll be speaking to the editor of The Spectator soon, of course. Um, you mentioned that the word picnic has now been declared offensive to people of colour, which is a bit of a blow, really. It's quite a useful word. Uh, can you explain that to us?
4: Okay, this is Brandeis University in the United States, and they are among the wokest of the woke. I think they're going for the cup this year. Um, and they've. they've uh, produced a list of, of of words that they want their staff and students never to use and it has all the predictable words on it. Uh, but it, it's, they've now added this word picnic on the basis that back in the days of lynchings, uh, it was that white people used to turn up at lynchings and have an open-air meal. Consequently, uh, lynchings are connected with the word picnic, therefore you can't ever use the word picnic. And as I say in the column, it's like saying you can't say the word dinner because Adolf Hitler occasionally had dinner. I mean, it's, uh, wokeness plunges <laughs> to depths of stupidity we never thought
0: possible.
2: Um, when I used to live in Melbourne, one of my favourite restaurants in South Yarra was a place called Lynch's. I'm wondering whether that's still going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I you,
0: you not know. Well, do
4: remember, at, in English, uh, English churches have got a lich and lich is an old English word for death. So I don't know why you'd call a <laughs> a, a restaurant that, I have to say.
2: Well, I think it was, it was called Lynch's because cause the owner was called, the owner's name was Lynch. That's why it was called Lynch's.
1: Yes. Um, Keller. I would have, thought that the root term that they were upset with was pickaninny, but my guess is wrong. But uh,
4: Picaninny, I doubt, is known outside Australia, so it, it, it can't really be that, that. That might
0: be the case, yeah. I don't think you can say it on anything other than this podcast, Tim. and then only barely. Yeah. And when There's a good friend of mine, his
4: name was John Chapman, and, and when the feminist started raging really badly, he said, Chapman is obviously an offensive name, I'll have to change my name to Chapperson. And then he thought about it for another day and came back and said, no, no, it, he said it'll have to be person-person. I mean, it's, it's, it's the height of absurdity, isn't it? Cal, just speaking of absurdity, we're now emerging
1: from this ridiculous, uh, what do you call it, pandemic nonsense. Uh, you would have, it would have been painful to your ears as someone who appreciates language to hear phrases like comorbidity and chief health officer and Dan Andrews. <laughs> Terrible words that's, that that, that alarm and <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. What are some of the? Um, do you have a, a just a quick uh, mental list at hand of some of the phrases that you wish never to hear again, like you know, lockdown and so on?
4: Actually, the the phrase I'd never like to hear again is, is net zero, but that's another story. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the point that I made about lockdown is lockdown was born in prisons. the The word lockdown was actually originally coined in the late nineteenth. By the American timber industry, because when they floated logs down a river uh, from wherever the logs were felled to the the mill, they, there was a log put across the ones going, and it was called the lockdown log. That was the name of it mm. to hold them all together. It was taken up in 1973 in uh, in I think San Diego. Anyway, somewhere in California, a prison there. There was a riot and the the governor of the prison decided that what he was going to do was put the prisoners into lockdown. So lockdown meant locking all the prisoners into their cells. And from then on, the chief use of the expression lockdown applied to prisons and prisoners and locking them all in their cells. Uh, And the point that I make is that even when lockdown is over, they are still prisoners. Uh, and unfortunately, it's looking a little bit that way for us. If you look at Victoria today, we're told their lockdown ended. No, it didn't, because the retail stores are not still open. So uh, w- once they've got us into lockdown, I'm afraid the prison mentality is going to be there for a long time to come.
0: We've moved from lockdown to segregation, I think. But, uh, I don't know. that We want to, maybe want to borrow some words from from Afrikaan for that. <laughs> Tim. Kel. Uh, we were talking last week about Shakespeare
1: who um among his you know he had one or two skills with the words, I guess you'd say, but he um he was also a very skilled inventor of words. Uh, he um he was a crafter of words. If he couldn't find a word to fit, he would um whip one up and uh, in my own minor way've I've attempted to do the same. Uh, sometimes to um it's got me in trouble, Kel I just I'll run one one of these words by you and I'll get your expert opinion. There was a few years ago, I ran a poll online to um, inviting readers to judge Australia's craziest left-wing feminist. Oh, and I couldn't, right. you know, I didn't, I, I didn't want to be sexist, obviously. No, so no, I had to no. come up with a new word. So the word I chose was fright bat.
4: Oh. oh. <laughs>
1: Got you in a lot of trouble, as I recall. <laughs> yes. A lot of trouble. They, they held an event... Believe it or not, they held an event to discuss my crime at the City Opera House and they didn't invite me. It was terrible. I would always wanted to play that venue. Anyway, <laughs> the, the reason, I mean, they petitioned the press council, many, many complaints, and uh, nothing came of it. And apparently it was because the press council couldn't really take action on a word that didn't have a dictionary definition. <laughs> so just a word of advice out there. A word of advice out there for people who want to avoid the... Um, the lashings of the uh, the press council just make up a word because yes, they're, they're, yes, they're yeah.
0: screwed. The, yeah, the, you, that was before COVID, of course. There is now, of course, a genuine fright bat, isn't there? Madame Wu, the lady in charge of the <laughs> oh, yeah. Institute of Virology, <laughs> yes.
4: and, and uh, unfortunately, the bat was entirely innocent. Uh, so the bat the bat is <laughs> the one who's been defamed in that entire process, and the pangolin. <laughs>
2: I will, I'll, I'll come back to bats in a minute, but but before I do that, the only I want to say the only time I've ever actually invented a word uh, that I can remember was a fairly recent context, and it was um, I was I think I read a piece of the Spectator about how the way uh, during during the Black Lives Matter thing, how all these corporates were desperate to appear woke and supporting the cause, uh, and um, I said that an insincere an insincere whether it's the police or a major corporation an insincere gesture. Towards these causes is flexion, which I thought was pretty good. <laughs> oh, that's that
4: is good. That is good. That is very good. nice, isn't it? That's excellent. Yes, yes. And we, but but we know how sincere they quickly. are because how sincere they are is indicated by um, the, the 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 famous comment that all that matters is sincerity. Once you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> that's right.
2: But just just to just to return briefly, I was going to ask you. It's funny that you should talk about bats because one of the words i I've, I've I've used all my life. And I've never quite interrogated it until this afternoon when I was thinking about it. Where do we get the word brickbat from when you, say, when you describe something as a brickbat?
4: Ah, no, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm... <laughs> I'm going to cheat, uh, because I, 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 I have got actually in front of me here the entire Oxford English Dictionary, because I'm, I'm a subscriber. Now, I don't know if they have anything on BrickBat, but I'm going to find out. Fairly obviously, it is something that you attack someone with. Uh, so columns yeah. get headed
2: up. But it would, it, would be regarded, it, it would be regarded as cheating in a very violent way in cricket, wouldn't well, it? Well,
4: the, the Oxford is saying it's just a lump of brick, or sometimes rock which can be hurled at someone. That's all they say. So, another, And then yeah. uh, metaphorically, a verbal attack, an insult, a criticism. So uh, they have nothing to add that we can't already work out with our imagination, unfortunately. It's, English is like that. You, you think that there's going to be a really interesting, clever story behind this, and occasionally there is, just occasionally. But very often, uh, you, after you know a century of research in Oxford, the, the final answer is two words, origin unknown. Or else it's something entirely obvious. So uh, I I wish there was a really exciting story behind Brickbat. I'm sorry, Simon, there isn't. Our (laughs) guest today is
0: Carol Richards, who's the man that Google go to when they don't know the answer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) One word I think that will will survive out of COVID is the word hesitant. You remember we were for a while, everybody was a skeptic. You know, they were a climate skeptic or or whatever. Uh, now everybody's hesitant. We, we're using this with great glee, of course. Uh, Simon, I noticed in your column this week, you talked about the freedom hesitant or freedom hesitancy like uh, Dan Andrews.
2: Well, I, 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 can't, I can't claim to have coined the phrase myself. I think I saw it somewhere. But um, it, it did spark a chain of thought in me is that it's, you know, sometimes, they, sometimes these new coinages have a real, they have a ring of truth about them and you go, yeah, I know people who are going, Oh yeah, no, I can. Yeah, I can go back to the gym. I'm just not sure I'm quite ready yet, you know. Um, so um, I think there's some truth in it. People are hesitant, but usually the people who've, who 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 locked down hasn't really disadvantaged or inconvenienced that much. In fact, it's actually been quite it's made aspects of their life quite pleasant. They're the hesitant ones.
4: This yes, hesitant comes from a Latin source word, and the Latin source word I think refers to people who stammer. Um, so they're, they're trying to get the word out and can't quite get there, which suggests that the, the vaccine hesitants were trying to get the shot, but couldn't quite manage to get there. <laughs>
1: Cal, um, it's, it's not often that uh, an archaic English phrase reemerges, um, but uh, this, this happened a few years ago. I, uh, I, thought I thought I'd came up with a word. And for a day uh, online, I was uh, this word was celebrated. I described a, a US diplomat who'd done something stupid as having beclowned himself. Ah. <laughs> and for a day, I had the glory of thinking, you know, I've come up with a word at last, you know, a nice word, maybe it'll get some general use. And it did, but it turns out that um, it's an archaic term, meaning to behave as a clown. And um, But the great thing is, every so often I Google it, and it's used to this day in headlines, sports reports. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the socialist Democrat from New York, she yes, used yeah. it. Yeah. So I, but I can't claim co- copyright. Yeah, you know, what's my legal standing on the invention of that word, Kel? <laughs> have I got, have I got, as,
4: as the sole reviver of the word, do I get any credit at all? Well, since the original, the, the earliest citation for the word is the year sixteen oh nine. I, I yes. think that, that there are people in the queue ahead of you, unfortunately. Sorry about that. Yeah, they're they're dead, Kel. <laughs> I, I could, you know, I, they got no rights. They can't claim it's out of copyright. It's all There's mine. Tim Blair once again trampling over the dead in order to claim glory for himself. <laughs> You've got to have a hobby,
0: Kel. <laughs> Kel, uh, Kel uh, the, um, I mean, the, the Australian language is so rich, isn't it? I mean, 19th century Australian English, I think, you know, evolved around the campfire, and so I like to imagine it. So rich with words. We were talking earlier about this wonderful book I've got here, My Desk, The Australian Language, by Sidney J. Baker, which is full of these words like bludger and things. Uh, the, the question I've got, and I hope the answer isn't too sad, are we still as inventive with words in Australia oh, as look, we were a- back in those days?
4: Absolutely. All the stories about the Australian uh, language dying are false. The truth is the Australian language is as bright as a box of budgies and as strong as a mallee ball, okay? <laughs> uh, it, it's not in trouble. It's changing because it's a living language, and living languages change. and slang is the fastest changing part of language. But, for example, the people who now who, who used to use the word cobber. A lot would never have heard budgie smugglers so something goes something comes mind you every time I say cobra has disappeared from the uh, the Australian language I get um, mess- messages from Tasmania saying we still stay it down here cobra so stop getting stuck into us um, so there are words which go and w- words which come but it remains inventive Philip Henshler the uh, British novelist was reviewing Tim Winton's novel Breath in the Spectator And he said, uh, talking about Winton's language, that uh, if he was shipwrecked on a desert island, the only reference book he'd like to have would be a dictionary of Australian slang, which has got to be (laughs) the most colourful branch of the language on the planet. And I think he is absolutely right. There are reasons for that. It's not accidental. Can can I do a really quick uh, history bit for you? My, my, this is my theory, and I've been arguing this for years now. The, the Australian language emerged really quickly. There's evidence that there was a distinctive vocabulary and, and accent by about the 1830s. Now that's fast. That's 50 years after the first convict colony. Uh, in the 1830s, there was a, an English businessman who sat up in Hobart and advertised in the local paper for someone to come and teach his sons the local language so they could communicate well. So there's evidence it was here early. It grew out of four on four foundations. The four foundations were English dialect words which are either adapted here or, or kept here when they died back at home. Uh, the flash language, the language spoken about, spoken by convicts, which I wrote about in my last book. Indigenous words, because we had to name all these strange animals around us. Uh, and the sort of convict military words, the words which were part of the... Now, you put those four things together, you're getting... And what, what you had was people from all over England. If you did a dialect map of England, it would be like a, a patchwork quilt your grandmother made with tiny mm. patches of colour everywhere. Go to the the next valley they they've got a different language and different dialect uh, go to the next town it sometimes happens now when you get the the people chosen from the whole of the british isles and stuck together here they suddenly discover there are lots of different ways of saying things so what this bloke calls a a matic another man calls a grubbing up tool and they have got to learn to talk to each other they became and and they had to name all these strange animals and strange you know, things around them the, they became very aware of language And that awareness of language is still part of the Australian language. There's a a sensitivity and a sense of inventiveness and creativity which came because these elements flowed together and people were consciously aware of language and what you can do with language. Uh, So consequently, for example, let let me ask you, Nicky, have you ever eaten YMCA?
0: YMCA? Yes, yes. Leftovers. No. Yesterday's muck
4: cooked again. (laughs)
0: I think the Australian conditions sort of call for a certain inventiveness of language I, I remember reading once that the Eskimos have seven different words for snow um, because they, they come across it a lot uh, Australians have at least seven different ways for chucking, words for chucking up Yes, the technicolor yep. yawn, hmm. saying hello to Ruth yes. and Huey, you know, <laughs> yeah, talking on the Great White Telephone.
4: Yes, yeah.
0: My
1: my my favorite is Marubra. Marubra. <laughs> so oh,
0: yeah.
2: I was going to say that the um, the reasons for the for the many many words for throwing up is same same kind of providence as the as the uh, Eskimos' reasons for lots of different words for snow is that um, you know Australians spend a lot of their time throwing up. Uh, skimos don 't have television when that was sort of that 's all all they had to look at was the snow but but i wanted to I wanted to say that i 've been struck by not only uh, australia 's capacity to contribute to you know vocabulary and slang and things but in australia and i want this is an opportunity for us collectively or you to actually ne- give something a name here is that australia's invented a new tense, not just a word an entire tense which for the purposes of illustration, I'll call uh, it's called past present, and it's, it's you usually hear it hear it's said by sports uh, uh, managers of footy clubs and policemen, and it's when they're describing something that's happened, they say he's come round, ra- he's come he's come round the corner, and he's. He's hit a car. It's like it's 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 neither present nor past. It's that's an that's an entirely new tense. Yes, yes, which we
4: should be proud of. So, uh, past present tense. I think I'll accept your your label for it. I can't think of a better (laughs) one. And it's because Australians feel comfortable to do things with words. We, we don't feel as though we've got to get it right. Uh, in, in England, the way you use language and the way you pronounce words and, w- and, w- and the way your voice sounds immediately identify you. They immediately say, you're in this class or this class or whatever. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I've, I can remember Clive James saying to me once in an interview, he said, the nice thing about being Australian is you open your mouth and they can't place you. They, you, they're really puzzled by you, and he really liked that. Now, I, I, I think that what you're talking about is the fact that we don't feel precious about language. We feel as though it's really comfortable doing anything with language, anything we want to do. It's it, it's it's like uh, North Queenslanders who add A's at the end of everything. Nice day, eh? Had a yeah. bit of rain yesterday, eh? <laughs> uh, so I think they've got their own football term. It's Australia, eh?
1: We share we share that with um, Canadians and New Zealanders, I think in in you like, do, large you part. But Kel, um, uh, besides the invention as Simon indicates of uh, the present past, we've also invented the cancelled
4: affirmative. Yeah, nah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, it it, remi- it reminds me of the f- the famous uh, uh, lecturer on linguistics who was explaining how double negatives uh, make a positive, but he said. Uh, but a double positive never never makes a negative. And the Aussie at the back back room said, Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's what I'm um,
1: saying. The way you describe uh, Australian language, it, it, I, I'd never thought about it until you described the, the different influences. It's basically the same linguistic mechanics as Creole, isn't it? Because uh, that's how the Creole language was
4: formed. Am I, am I right? Yeah, it, it's that's not a bad comparison, actually. It is a kind of Creole, uh, and it is unlike any other language on Earth. Uh, we've we've got our own... It, it's, can I say people overseas love our language? I met some Americans once getting off yeah. an aeroplane, and they said to me, say it for us. And I looked at the puzzle, <laughs> and they said, say it, say it. And then the penny dropped, and I said, G'day. Oh, he said it. He said it. They were so excited. Uh, during the 2000 Olympics, we heard the Australian commentators. What we didn't hear was the American commentators who were working with Australian crews getting really excited mm-hmm. about the Australian language because they were hearing their crews talking the way you and I normally talk. Um, yeah. and, and so the rest of the world loves our language and I think we need to treasure it as such. Just in terms of the evolution of the Australian Creole,
1: we've also had, with subsequent waves of immigration... Additional terms, uh, there's a an Asian automotive subculture in Australia, and people refer to cars modified after a certain fashion as being riced up. So <laughs> you've got those more recent a, a additions. Also, I think anyone who grew up in migrant-heavy suburbs in the 70s and 80s, we learned a great many obscene phrases in Greek and Italian. I'm not sure if they've, they've drawn through to the broader vocabulary in Australia, but... Uh, yeah, that's a, those are colourful um, pr- languages when it comes to profanity, aren't they, Cal?
4: And, and can I say there was a, a linguistic student who did a PhD on Lebanese Australian because the Lebanese mm. have been here for so long that they've they've yeah. integrated a lot of their words with our words and come up with their mm-hmm. their own distinct. Now it's a dialect which I don't know, so I can't I can't give you examples mm. of it. But it was it was enough to support a PhD thesis. So yes, you're exactly right,
0: Cal. What we we, we, we fast running out of time but i hope this is uh, an opportunity to say we'd love to have you back on but maybe just a quick intervention from simon before we cl- we, cl- we close
2: well ju- just two very two very brief ones go, go tim's talk I- i'm not a petrol head like tim but i'm being very impressed when i i i, I loved i love words that couldn't have i couldn't have learnt in england and one of them was um, a word someone did de- uh, someone described someone how oh, he drives a he drives a buddha <laughs> And I said, "What's a?" <laughs> I said, "What's a Buddha?" He said, oh, "I one of those big V eights sits at the traffic light and goes Buddha, 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 <laughs> Buddha." But, but the, 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 the other, the other one was, uh, the other one was, uh, as uh, I made a lot of commercials and I off- direct my own commercials, and I loved it. One day I heard one of my my first assistant uh, when we were about to start a complicated shoot. He said, uh, "Right, everybody, uh, let's get some socks on this octopus," and you you could, you you could never have made that up in Britain.
4: Yes, yeah, and that kind of inventiveness is is what we – it hasn't gone away. It's still there. Um, uh, When budgie smugglers were out, uh, someone who was boasting about himself, they said, he's going to be wearing budgie smugglers. He said, in my case, mate, it's bloody parrot smugglers. Um, (laughs) And and I was out past Gunnedah once, and I said, I'm driving out to so-and-so's property. He said, oh, it's hard work getting in there, mate. He's got a Methodist gate. I said, what's a Methodist gate? He said, "Ah, oh, it's a gate only a Methodist can open or close without swearing. <laughs> so it, it's happening all the time. It's happening all the time. It's a rich and wonderful language we have. We need to treasure it. And yes, Nick, I'd be happy to come back any time.
0: We'd love you to. We'd love you to, Kel. It's been a, a lot of fun and we'll sit here. We'll keep a note of all the words we need explained and a lot we'll explain to you. Thank you very much for joining us, Kel. And we always look forward to your columns and contributions to Peter Credlin's Great show on Sky News. Thanks for joining us here on the Six O'Clock Squirrel.
4: Thank you, guys. Talk to you again. Bye.
0: Kel Richards, Jesus, good value for money and, and a very reasonable fee for appearing on a podcast and money well spent. We'll have him back again, <laughs> eh? Um, any observations, Simon?
2: Listen, uh, as you know, um, I hate to hear the, the mother tongue abused uh, in any way. But uh, what Cal does is he enhances it, so I'm all in favour of Cal. Mm. Yes, I
1: think I think we can be any, pro
2: Cal. Yes. Yeah, we're all pro Cal. We're
0: definitely pro Cal. Any uh, any other business to clear up on Glasgow before we move on? To, I just um, I just thought it more important
2: matters? I just thought it might be worth you know, I mean, at the, the end of the day, he's decided to go uh, quite possibly because he's now realised an additional reason to be there is he. Given the all the other people who aren't going to be there it's a rare occasion for a Prime Minister of Australia to be the most important man in the room uh, uh, <laughs> apart from Boris Johnson perhaps but I just thought um, we should spare a, spare a bit of sympathy for for Morrison you know he's going to go to, and you know because we know how, we know how affable and friendly he likes to be he's going to go around the city and he's probably going to say good day I'm Scott. And, and people are going to say, are you trying to be funny, pal? If you're Scott, I'm a kangaroo. And he, but, he, but he should be reassured. We've talked about this in our last thing about Glasgow's reputation for violent crime. He'll be mm. very, very reassured to know that uh, because of COVID and because of the uh, British, because of the UK's uh, uh, astonishing uh, but uh, ovine acceptan- of, acceptance of regulations about COVID, that uh, there's been a massive plummet in the incidence of violent crime in Glasgow because I don't know whether you know that the traditional Glasgow greeting is called uh, a Glasgow kiss—is when they headbutt you. But because of social yes. distancing, criminals have been have been not been doing it, or they've been missed, <laughs> or, or they've been missing by about a meter. <laughs> it's a great venue,
0: isn't it, for a cli- climate global warming—I should call it—conference. I, I, I look this up, chaps. In the ma- the average maximum right maximum daytime temperature in november is 9 degrees mm. with a 50% chance of rain uh, i had a uh, little known fact but a whole branch of my family lived in glasgow uh, that's my mother's side of the family and i had a scottish cousin who, who once told me that glaswegians look forward to summer every year because it's the best day of the year <laughs> <laughs> I, I,
1: it's always it's always a lovely afternoon <laughs> Now, one of, one of the things about this is uh, is people who aren't going. Now, Joe Biden isn't going because I don't think he knows what he's doing in the U.S. But he's sending, besides his massive U.S. delegation of presumably you know hundreds of people, he's sending 13 extremely senior members of his government at, at a time when the U.S. has got inflation, a shattered southern border, all manner of issues, a sh- shortage of supplies in shops. He's sending the Secretary of State. And the, and the transport secretary is sending people who have important emergencies at home to deal with. What? Why would you do that? Does he think for the first time in history that a senior senior politician is going to get good press out of a climate conference? It never, ever happens. You know, we've had Kevin Rudd, Julie Gillard, Malcolm Turnbull, Bill Shorten. All of their careers have either been ended or, um, or at least in the case of Shorten, Abbreviated by their uh, by their adherence to the the climate cult. I can't see it working for Biden either.
2: One of the most revealing things I saw this week, uh, in, in in the context of what you just said, there was that John Kerry, who's you know who's going to is going to go to Glasgow, he admitted in an interview this week that even if even if the world achieves net zero, quote, we will still have to eliminate carbon from the atmosphere. In other words. When we do everything that we say we're going to do, Aye. it's still, the job's not even started.
0: Well, they're always trying to find something else to do. Uh, look, I mean, the COVID is a very similar topic and we can't let a whole, surely we can't let a whole six o'clock swill go by without addressing the battle of our times, the war against COVID-19. And, um, well, here in New South Wales, of course, we're, we're enjoying some glorious summer and we're opening up. Victoria is now following... Suit, which is fantastic. I mean, it's great to see Dominic Perrottet leading the way, and Dan Andrews following. It reminds me of uh, Oscar Wilde's famous quote: "Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness." How are we seeing the great opening up, chaps?
2: What's what I thought was interesting this week is um, it's real. This is this is brilliant, kind of Orwellian politics going on here. Victoria has now become. After having you know, broken the world lockdown records, Victoria's now become obsessed with uh, uh, with M- Melbourne's position on the world uh, world vaccination rankings, and 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 um, I thought Brett Sutton, you know the the uh, the Victorian government's mm. adonis like uh, PR guy, um, his mm. he, he made a statement second
0: only second only to second only to Lord Norman Swan. I think in his knowledge mm. of medical science. Yeah, no, he yeah.
2: doesn't quite have Norman's uh, bedside manner, but he's uh, he's got the kind of ste- he's got the kind of steely resolve that makes him a chick magnet, which Norman, frankly, isn't. But anyway, um, mm. last Sunday he made this announcement uh, at the press conference, the live press conference, and he and he was talking about Victoria's vaccination progress by giving it the context of these international rankings, and he said it's it's really extraordinary how we're shooting up in the world, and I thought. As a choice of words, that was about 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 having injections, <laughs> talking about it like, six how we should. No, but, but 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 more seriously, the sheer hutzpah of trying to put a positive spin on what is let's be by every measure an appalling record of containment and handling of the virus. Traditionally, when we wanted when when we draw attention to something that's dodgy, and we and, and we and we want to make it look like it's something good. Traditionally, we call it mutton dressed as lamb. Okay. Yes. The Vic mm. government has added a new phrase, which goes one step beyond this. From now on, when we want to t- draw attention to something truly shameful, it will now be known as Sutton dressed-up scam.
1: Very good. Very, <laughs> very good. good. <laughs> and something else happened in Victoria um, during the week. We had a double stabbing at a at a Victorian Woolworths supermarket. I think it was a Woolworths, and. Uh, mm. The, um, o-
0: over what? The toilet paper crime? Uh, well, uh, they're, they're all
1: ch- chasing the last roll of toilet paper? Well, a gentleman has been charged, so we possibly shouldn't discuss it in any great depth. But, uh, yes, two people stabbed. Uh, police said it was a random incident. There appears to be no religious component to it. But Woolworths, in response, have removed all knives and scissors from their shelves. At the same, t- <laughs> at the same time last week, Woolworths announced that all staff must be vaccinated or they won't be allowed to work at Woolworths so can we come up with a consistent position please on the insertion of metal in human bodies it seems to be a bit all over the shop (laughs) (laughs) stabs bad jabs good uh you know
0: and now we're delighted to welcome the podcast one of the funniest Voices on Sky News Australia, the presenter of Outsiders, and uh, in his spare time, the editor of a little-known magazine called Spectator Australia. Welcome, Rowan Dean.
3: How are you, Nick? Great to be part of a podcast like this. I mean, the listeners get three of Australia's sexiest men, plus Nick Cater. How good is that? I know,
0: I know. Uh, hey, look, great, great magazine. I saw your email. I've read uh, a couple of the pieces. Apart from uh, an excellent piece by a guy called Collins, what's in this week's magazine?
3: Uh, well, there's lots of... There's the, you can't really go past the Simon Collins piece. I mean, that's that's where it begins and ends, you know. You, most people I know go straight for the Simon Collins page. They tear it out. They pin it yeah. up on their bedroom wall if they're a woman or maybe <laughs> even if they're a bloke. I mean, we're you know the spectators moving into, you know, new uncharted waters... Um, Now, there's some great, uh, great pieces in this week. Uh, Rebecca Weiser has uh, come out very, all guns blazing to say that it is the vaccinated who are causing the spread of the pandemic and not the unvaccinated. And she's based that on uh, some pretty solid data. So that's that's certainly Mm. one worth reading.
1: Rowan, I've actually seen people in newsagents tearing out Simon's column and rushing from the <laughs> shop so they don't have to buy the rest of it. They, uh...
3: It's a, it's a common problem, Tim. It's a problem we have all the time. You know, you, you, you might have to pretty much any dentist's uh, room you go into, you will find a spectator there. But there will be the Simon Collins page will be missing. You know, it will have gone.
1: <laughs> you might have to do. You might have to use a little publishing trick that I've seen used in the US. Um, for a time, I'm not sure if it's still happening. It became very popular in some, uh, let's just call them inner urban areas, uh, where they would publish, you know, various publishers would, would produce newspapers that only contained mugshots of local arrested people, which, you know, they're copyright free, they're, they're accessible online, and they just run the mugshots and little descriptions of the, the crimes they've been accused of. But of course, one of the large markets for this publication were the criminals themselves wanting to see if they were in it so they just they, they just they just flicked through it at the shop and not bother to buy it so they ended up they were sold stapled together you had to buy it to take the staples out brilliant
3: but, uh, Tim, you might have hit on something that's, uh, that might actually solve the riddle of the missing Collins pages. If yes. you look at the uh, drawing that, uh, that Simon Collins is a multi-talented man, he did the cartoon as well that accompanies his column, and yes. he looks very much like a you know criminal from Pentonville uh, or Long Bay or somewhere who's done a good, a good 20 or 30 years. So maybe that's what they're thinking.
2: Now, do, do, can I just jump in there and say that um, – and um, I, I did that car. As you've, if you've seen the cartoon, you may notice it's not very flattering.
3: Was, hang on. Hang on. I've heard people say it's very flattering. <laughs> 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 they haven't got much. I don't know who the cartoonist is, but they haven't got much material well, to work well, on. Well, have well,
0: they? Well, Come on. Be well, fair. When, when,
2: I, I remember once being at a spectator event. I think it was one of those lunches. And Yana Vent, well, you know, the a heart problem of my early days in Australia happened to be there. And she happened to join a group of people I was talking to. And someone said to me, some bloke said to me, oh, mate. That cartoon's not very flattering. And I said, yeah, I drew it myself. And he said, what, you drew a really bad cartoon? I said, yeah. I said, because the the theory was, if I draw a really unflattering cartoon, um, a beautiful woman will come up to you one day and say, you're so much better looking than your cartoon. At which point, (laughs) at which point Yann Event looked me straight in the eye and said, I'm going to get another drink. (laughs) <laughs>
0: Rowan if I could just uh, say a few words of praise for your magazine more generally I mean it was it was a terrific addition to the Australian scene when uh, Andrew Neil took the bold step of opening a an Australian edition what well over 10, ten, years, years, ago. Ago. Yeah, yeah, over ten years ago yeah just over 10 years ago and we, we always enjoyed it there was always plenty in it but I, I must say that that probably in the last year or two it's come to be even more important you're able to say things i think which dare i say are being censored in the rest of the media mm. we've noticed this particularly with with covid um as you know you broadcast on sky news and you know that on sky news they're now very much beholden to the, the what can and cannot be said according to youtube about covid and what cannot be said for instance is uh well you couldn't go up there and challenge the efficacy of masks for instance mm. that's uh, that's a no no. It's, but it, so it does seem to me very precious that in spectator you can still voice some of these ideas which don't seem to me to be that wacky i mean you do have some wacky stuff in there to be honest but most of it's not do you just kind of feel this burden of responsibility now
3: well it's interesting you say that nick because what is uh uh mark latham always uh says that uh uh, he, he uh, you know, he didn't move to the right. It's just that everyone moved so far to the left that Latham mm. stayed exactly where he was when he was leader of the Labour Party. And now he looks like a crazy right winger, uh, to paraphrase Mark Latham. And I think the similar thing has happened to an extent with The Spectator. I've always uh, gone for, you know, more conservative, uh, I guess you call it centre-right conservative Uh, writing uh, simply because there's such a obvious gap in the market in Australia for that but what has happened it's been a real uh, eye-opener how you know other media have become so woke uh, even the ones we used to think were conservative uh, Mm. have become extremely woke and we've got uh, you know a newspaper campaign at the moment pushing net zero from quarters I never thought I would see it coming from Mr Blair yes uh, there you, you go you'll look,
1: you look have no tim's
0: a big net zero man aren't you tim <laughs>
3: well
1: in, zero, in terms man. of my income that's true but
0: uh <laughs> in other ways no. well look we won't keep you uh we, we'd love we'd love to be able to highlight your magazine each week and have you back but we're not going to let you go before you uh offer uh, um, a special code to listeners of the six o'clock squirrel where they can go and get an initial trial subscription to the Spectator
3: for next to nothing. That sounds a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Great idea. I think. Uh, I think uh, all uh, forward all requests to S. Collins. At, <laughs>
1: um, by, by the uh, way, Roland. Yeah. By the way, mate. Um, when Simon yeah. is eventually charged, as you know, is is inevitable. He'll be one of the few people in the dock who can do <laughs> his own court <laughs> illustration. It'll be terrific. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you were saying. No, I I, I was just going to say, Nick, on your point, this week we've got, I think it's four different articles all on Net Zero. Matt Canavan's written on Net Zero, John Stone, the great John Stone, uh, David Flint, Judith Sloan. So some really top brains there writing from different angles all about uh, this craziness we now find ourselves in, where the entire country seems uh, to be held hostage to Boris Johnson's a uh, bedtime uh, partner is how it strikes me. I mean, Johnson wants to get his okay. jollies and the whole of Australia has to abandon coal. How does that work?
1: Does it, Does anyone else notice, by the way, that Judith is so much more liberated in the pages of The Spectator than elsewhere? She's writing beautifully ah. these days. She's Maybe she's it's just great. different we, subject matter, you know.
3: Maybe it's no, that. we call we call mm. her. We call. She's got a split personality. She's bad Judith when she writes for the Spectator. Well, it's great to have you on, Rowan. Keep in touch, and we'll
0: we'll do our best to give you a plug every week. Thank on you very no
4: much. Keep, keep
2: up the great work, guys. See you. See you mate. Bye. Bye.
0: Rowan Dean from The Spectator. Uh, I've got access to some polling uh, chaps which I'd like to share with you. Compass polling. They asked, How close would you find it tolerable to live to the following places? and then gave people a slider scale from 0 to 250 kilometres. They asked 1,000 people these questions and then picked out an average. So here's the answers The average distance people be prepared to live from a brothel is 51 kilometres. 54 kilometres from a crematorium, 61 kilometres from an airport, 90 kilometres from a garbage dump, 99 kilometres from a chicken farm, 101 kilometres from an abattoir. Now here it gets interesting. 131 kilometres from a coal-fired power plant, but only 129 from a nuclear plant. So it seems that people think just by a couple of kilometres, they're more comfortable with a nuclear plant than a coal-fired power plant. Does that surprise the panel? I'd like to live next door to a nuclear brothel. <laughs> that's a good idea, isn't it?
2: I think I think, that's, I think that that little that small difference in uh, in in those percentages um, is indicative of a movement, uh, you know, and it's it's picked up by you know Chris Chris Kenny this week did a thing is doing a thing on Sky about the changing attitudes towards nuclear when Scott Morrison comes back from Glasgow. Remember, when, remember when Scott Morrison first got any kind of traction as a possible leader? It was in I can't remember which year it was, but it was when he was treasurer and he walked into Parliament, right? And he and he and he pulled that lump mm. out of his pocket and said, "This is coal." You know, I, I can imagine. I can mm. imagine <laughs> he could he could he could he could swing. He could create a huge swing back behind him by walking into Parliament, pulling out a lump and saying, "This is uranium." Is that a
0: lump of yellow cake In your pocket Or are you just pleased to see me
2: I could be wrong But
0: Good luck getting it through The
4: security
1: (laughs) at Parliament That might set off a few alarms You know The radioactivity The Geiger candles Will be flipping all over the place
0: Can I just share with you Just in closing My woke gripe Of the week Please Uh, So I've been patiently Trying to learn Spanish I made it An ambition of mine to learn Spanish. I'm not quite sure why, but I'm doing it through Duolingo. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a sort of it's where you learn language from a woke cartoon owl. It's quite a good app. It's quite addictive. I'm now on, would you believe, day 939 straight. Say it in Spanish. Come on. Say it in Spanish. Say it in Spanish. (laughs) Oh no, no. Well, anyway, this morning they hit me with this one. When I was on there, they hit me with this one. Ya no con ella porque me dijo que no recicla which translated means I'm not going to go out with her anymore because she told me she doesn't recycle. Can anybody <laughs> think of a worse reason for dumping a girlfriend? <laughs> Several years ago, maybe
1: a couple of decades ago in the US, a farmer in the US tried to teach himself some some rudimentary Spanish so he could better communicate with the Mexican workers at his farm and he thought this he eventually became so proficient that he thought it might be a useful guide he could produce a guide for his fellow farmers and he did produce this little guide useful phrases for people working with the mexican staff on their farms and sales were unexpectedly high and also in unusual areas universities in los angeles and new york were buying copies of this book And no one could, what's going, why are they buying this? You know, there's not a lot of corn farms in Manhattan. The reason was they were using his book as an example of American racism because the phrases he'd chosen as examples that might might be useful for, (laughs) with your Mexican staff, they included phrases like, stop throwing your beer bottles in the cornfields, you people live like pigs. And uh, he, <laughs> <laughs> a very useful phrase in a lot of circumstances. Um, I've heard it myself. It is. The, it uh,
0: is. It's almost as useful as Où est la, la plume de maton? The, <laughs> the, there uh, is my aunt's.
2: Pen. The, 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 <laughs> the, the only Italian I've learned that wasn't related to a restaurant or a bar was once uh, in, a, in a resort in Italy. I, I, I jumped in the swimming pool without with, forgetting I was wearing my contact lenses. And one of them, you know, floated out. And I got out of the pool, and one of the staff came running over, saying, "What's the matter?" in Italian. And I picked up my phrase book, thinking, "How can I possibly explain the dilemma I'm in?" And I, believe it or not, I opened the phrase book, and I looked at the index, in the back. I turned the page, and there it was: "O perso una catada la piscina." I've lost the contact lens in the swimming pool. I didn't have to do it. It was all there. It must be a very common.
1: Well, the only Italian phrases hey. I've ever learned were from cars because you know petrol and uh, one of the earliest I learned was testa rossa, redhead, <laughs> and now I'm married ah, to an yeah. Italian redhead, so it all worked out well.
2: Oh, there's a great pun in that. It was a perfect match. Do you get it?
0: Oh geez. <laughs> do you get it? Jesus! <laughs> Enough yes, of this nonsense, I do. We must good. get <laughs> that's, that's very remind, a, that's, a, remind,
2: that's an Australian. You joke. remind me, Jim, yeah.
0: We must get Nadia back on sometime. Absolutely. But, uh, mm-hmm. I think that we're getting to the end. I think that's just about up. That's just about it for the six o'clock squeal. La serie que tiene un talento para las tonterías <laughs> and uh, no mess, no uh, mess. The, the the show that has a talent for nonsense. Um, back. At, don't forget, listen to us on Apple Podcasts if you can, where seventy-five percent of podcast listeners go. You can press five stars if you think we're worth it. You can also subscribe so you'll know when the next episode is coming up. And don't forget to tell your friends about this enormously funny, hilarious.
2: Well,
4: tell
0: us take what it's called. The tell week. them what it's called. And I think that's about it. Tell them what it's called. Six O'Clock's Will, your trusted (laughs) weekly guide to all the news that fits the pillory, mock, deride or otherwise lampoon with Simon Collins, Tim Blair and Nick Cater. That's it. We'll see you all again next week. Did that work? Yes.